seven people that all claimed they saw the same thing. They were shooting at him. They had a shootout with him. They were... It's a cool June evening in 1947. Private pilot Kenneth Arnold is navigating his small plane near Mount Rainier when something catches his eye. It's not a bird, not another airplane, but nine high-speed objects, unlike anything he's ever seen, moving in formation across the sky. His reports would send shockwaves around the world and give birth to the term we all know too well. Meanwhile, over the skies of Phoenix, Arizona, a man captures two photos that corroborate Arnold's report. This would all culminate in the summer of 1947 with the Roswell, New Mexico crash landing. It's here, in the clear blue skies above our world, that the birth of the modern UFO phenomenon begins, forever leaving the people of this world looking toward the sky for answers for questions they may never get. Let's start with Kenneth Arnold. A businessman and private pilot, Arnold was flying near Mount Rainier on June 24, 1947, when he encountered that which would become the stuff of legends. He reported seeing objects flying in a V formation, but it was his description of their movement, like a saucer skipping across the water, that caught the media's attention and would give birth to the term flying saucer. Now, what's fascinating about Arnold's encounter is that it's not an isolated incident. Around the same time, a prospector on Mount Adams named Fred Johnson reported seeing six similar objects and even noted that his compass began acting erratically. A member of the Forest Service on Fire Lookout also reported seeing unusual flashing lights in the sky around the same time as Arnold and Johnson. What's fascinating about this incident is it takes two weeks before another well-known UFO encounter. Just a couple weeks later, the Roswell incident happened. It was July 1947 in Roswell, New Mexico, when a rancher discovered unusual debris in his pasture. This sparked wide-scale speculation about a crashed extraterrestrial spacecraft and ignited the UFO phenomenon that is still alive today. However, before the public could even digest the news from Roswell, another incident happened. On July 7, 1947, William Rhodes of Phoenix, Arizona, took two photographs of a particular object in the sky. He described the object as circular, with no sound and no means of propulsion. Rhodes' photos don't depict your typical flying saucer. Instead, they seem more like a round disc, thicker on the top than on the bottom. Nevertheless, these photos, in conjunction with Arnold's reports, added significant fuel to the public's fascination with unidentified flying objects. Within the span of just a few weeks in the summer of 1947, if Arnold's accounts, the Roswell incident, and Rhodes' photos, each of these events, in their own way, playing a pivotal part in the shaping of the public's perception of unidentified flying objects. Hey guys, um, before we get into it, uh, before we get any further into this, if you aren't already, could you please like and subscribe? Um, YouTube analytics are showing that only 33% of you are that are viewing the content are subscribed. So please hit that subscription button and click the notifications bell to stay up to date with here with us. What's going on, guys? I hope you enjoyed the intro. But if you could notice, we, we're shifting gears here on this episode. I know that we've been covering a lot of ghostly and spooky stuff, but now we're moving into another topic that we'll be covering on this podcast, which is UFOs, UAPs. Here with us isn't just a ghost show, it isn't just a UFO show, and it's not just a cryptid show. The whole premise behind this project is to discover how they're connected and what is truly here with us. In the beginning there, we covered kind of the history behind the modern UFO phenomenon. They began with Kenneth Arnold in June of 1947. He was actually looking for a downed military aircraft to collect a $5,000 reward around Mount Rainier. 
and that's when he he had looked for a couple hours, didn't see anything, went back to cruising altitude, and that's when he saw nine shiny flying objects in the sky. Uh, he did some quick calculations, and it, originally he thought they were moving about 1,200 miles per hour. He later found that they were traveling around 1,700 miles per hour, which in 1947 is pretty freaking fast. So you have Kenneth's incident, you have William Rhodes' photographs, which actually didn't get covered in the beginning, but Arnold saw those photos and actually took them and tried to get more information from the U.S. Army Air Corps, which switched a couple months later to the United States Air Force. It was eventually turned down, so he wasn't actually able to find out any more information about it. One thing that wasn't exactly clear in the intro was Rhodes's photographs were taken the day before Roswell. They were June 7th. Roswell happened on June 8th. Um, so those two things came out around the same time and piggybacked off of one another to spark that um, craze. And then that's when Arnold tried to get the photos. He saw the article where the Rhodes had actually said that he'd saw these and put, put them in the newspaper. And he, he got the a copy of the photos and tried to go to the United States Air Force and get information on that. So from about 1947 to about 1952, there's all kinds of crazy sightings. I also want to add that there are sightings that go back all the way to... There are sightings that go all the way back to the beginning of mankind. Weird lights in the sky. During World War II, British fighter pilots actually called them Foo Fighters. That's actually where the name of Dave Grohl's band, the Foo Fighters, come from. It comes from the weird lights that pilots during World War II would see. They called them Foo Fighters. But from about 1947 to 1952, there's all kinds of reportings. It's becoming more and more of a cultural phenomenon. And then officially in 1952, the United States Air Force starts Operation Blue Book. Operation Blue Book runs from 1952 all the way to 1969. It's an official on-the-books report from the United States Air Force where they investigated some of these UFO encounters. They investigated multiple encounters. They came to the conclusion for most of them that they were either faked or man-made. One and the same there, if you ask me. Most of them remained remain unidentified. So a couple of them that are key to mention here. The Lubbock Lights, which happened in Lubbock, Texas in 1951. The D.C. sighting, obviously happened in Washington, D.C. Pretty big deal. In 1952, the Exeter, the Exeter, excuse me, hope I'm pronounced, hope I'm pronouncing this right, but the Exeter incident in Exodus, New, Exodus, New Hampshire in 1962, and the Sicario incident in 1964. The Lubbock incident, obviously, Lubbock, Texas, some residents saw what they call flying saucers flying in a v-shaped formation over lubbock texas they reported them flashing what you see a lot with these is flashing lights different colors i mean we've all seen close encounters of the third kind or et finger lights up very common with the, with the ufo phenomenon the washington dc one that's a little different there was some sightings but there was also radar hits or or sensor hits um which the government says were misidentified atmospheric objects. What is that besides the UFO? I don't know. And in 1952, I doubt they could tell themselves. But nevertheless, they they think they debunked that one. Uh, that The DC incident actually caused widespread panic and, um, and attention to the UFO craze in the, in the 50s. Um, being in our nation's capital, national defense being 
um, a high priority of the U.S. government, which we'll get into that a little bit later, kind of on where we're at today as far as national security is concerned. Now, the exterior incident, or exterior, whatever, let me know below, or, you know, send an email into herewithus.com if I'm pronouncing that wrong, anyone from New Hampshire that knows. Um, but exterior incident, several eyewitnesses saw a large, and I mean they say it was large, um, flying object with red flashing lights on it that I believe crashed down from what I read. Um, nothing was found, and it was it was actually one of the Project Blue Book's um, investigations that became inconclusive. They couldn't find any more information on it. They couldn't validate it. They couldn't debunk it. Um, so it's pretty pretty big on the list there. One of the most intriguing cases in Project Blue Book was the Sicario incident near Sicario, New Mexico. Police officer Lonnie Zamora, give me one second, let me check my notes. Yeah, Lonnie Zamora um, reported seeing an egg-shaped object flying in the sky near the New Mexico, near Zamora, New Mexico. Try as they might, once again, this is one that they couldn't find anything on, um, and several other people witnessed it besides him. But it was—it's an account of a public figure coming forward to, to to talk about this. Now, let's be real here. I personally, and I, I don't know for the other true believers out there, if you really believe any of the findings of Project Blue Book, because for those almost 10 years, you, you have the United States government going around investigating it, which if they were hiding Roswell, they're hiding anything else, they would continue to hide it. You know, Even if they found something, they would probably be like, ah, they'll sweep it under the rug. Believe what you will. So another one that's not part of Project Blue Book, but is also interesting to the whole UFO phenomenon, and there'll be another episode here soon to go further into this incident. I just want to mention it now because I believe it ties into the whole premise of the show of what is here with us. So those of you that are familiar with the Mothman encounters or the Mothman prophecies written by John Keel in... Point Pleasant, West Virginia, that's where Mothman was at, but in a triangle around that area, uh, you have a man named Woodrow Durnberger, who's like, and I believe not just Woodrow Durnberger, but all these people in these incidents, they're respectable people. They're your everyday farmer, um, and in that time there wasn't, I don't believe, uh, you know, there was a lot of people running around um, kind of claiming loony stuff. Like, I believe people were really grounded back then. So to have businessmen and other people in the country, or out in the country, like area, not the country at large, but to have them come forward and give these accounts, and more than one account adding up or having similar sightings, I believe gives it the case's validity. Now back to Woodrow Durenberger, prominent businessman was driving home, on a stretch of highway where he said that a craft came down, a cylindrical craft came down, and a man named Indrid exited it, exited the craft, and spoke to him telepathically. Now, with John Keel, with John Keel, Indrid Cole became a key player in the whole Mothman incident, but that same incident, or an incident like it, was reported in the area multiple times surrounding that. We've gone from 1952 to 1969 with a whole lot of speculation and kind of witch hunts, if you will, or wouldn't call it a witch hunt, but more more or less investigations done by the U.S. government, which I believe was just done to kind of give uh, lip service to the whole thing going on. Do I believe that they actually did true investigation? Maybe they did. 
I, I mean, I believe they did. Did they give the correct findings of that? Probably not. And my reason for coming to that conclusion or having that opinion is because in 2019, the United States Congress declassified two major UFO encounters by the United States Navy. Uh, one is known as the Tic Tac incident, which took place in 2004 off the coast of San Diego with the Nimitz Strike Carrier Group and the USS Princeton kind of picking up on a, an object in the training area, which, if you're not familiar, they were training Commander David Fravor, who had at that time almost 20 years of experience as an aviator, and his co-wingman, or wingman pilot, uh, who still to this day does not, has given interviews but will not give their name, were contacted by the U.S. Princeton, who was part of the Strike Carrier Group, and told them that they were being diverted from training uh, to a real-world mission and real-world tasking. They then were given a grid coordinate. They started to fly to that grid coordinate. In the military, when, when they're sending somebody to a radar point, they call it a merge plot. Basically, the radar operator can no longer differentiate the friendly craft from whatever they're sending you there or whatever they're going to engage. So at this time, Commander Fravor and his wingman began to fly in a circular like hold pattern. They looked down to the water and they saw in the water a rumbling of a tic-tac, which they describe as a tic-tac shape. After they had done a couple circles, Fravor decided he was going to go check it out. At this time, they have no armaments on the aircrafts uh, because they were in a training scenario. Commander Fravor says immediately the object recognized him or, or acknowledged him uh, and began to rise. And it went to from sea level to about 28,000 feet in the matter of a couple seconds. Then it flies towards Commander Fravor. Almost, it's, it's a near miss, no collision. I would hate to see that insurance bill <laughs> or explain it to an insurance company. So it zips past Commander Fravor. Uh, they are told to return to the, to the Nimitz. So they do. So they return back to the Nimitz. And another pilot there says he's going to go find it. So he he's launched off. He goes, he doesn't have any armaments, but he has a sensor on the front, which is a camera system, if you will. Um, not necessarily a camera, but it's an imaging system uh, to go out. And he wants to engage with it, which they he does. He does catch back up to it. Uh, and that's the, the video you see. Um, it's an infrared. And there's two lines like this. And there's a tic-tac in between them. And there, he's kind of tracking it as he's flying. Uh, it tells you the altitude if you look at the, the readings, and I'll show a photo of that now. And once again, if you're listening and not watching, these will be available. I'll add a link in the show notes. But what's important is that from those two from the two lines in the sensors, which you can think of as like sights of a, of a weapon, you're able to see the tic-tac move with extreme speed. A, a big thing with these, with the, these sightings, people try to go, oh, it's faked, or it's this, or it's that, or you can't tell because of the speed. Uh, what's more important here than the actual video is the encounter, like the fact that you have a video, you have eyewitnesses that have aeronautic backgrounds. So they know when when Commander Fravor says, hey, this thing moved like nothing I've seen before. And I've been flying um, the world's best airplanes for 20 years. That has weight to it. Another incident that was declassified in 2019 was the gimbal video, which I'll play a little clip of it now. What's important about the gimbal video, what's important with that is the way that the craft moves in the air. And if you listen to the video or you'll find the video and you watch it, the reaction to the pilots, they're, they're tripping out. They're like, oh my God, I can't believe how this thing is moving. Once again, that is what adds weight to the incident. 
Now, in this episode, we won't cover every single UFO encounter because there's too many to, to cover. Um, and we're going to soon, we're going to, here in a minute, we're going to move away from really incidents and we're going to talk about the existence of what they are and some of the theories that float around in our communities and in the sphere of public conversation. So what was important about the 2019 declassification is now we have the U.S. government who historically, in the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, I mean, even with things like Bob Lazar and his whole incident, um, deny, 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 that can be hard to say if you try to say it. Deny, 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 deny. Um, now they're saying that they have these incidents with flying objects. But what's more important is now now they're not the, the U.S. government's not calling them UFOs. That has too much of a stigma around it. That That's tinfoil hat you know, like, we all have a little tinfoil hat we put on sometimes, but to the government, they can't, they can't show that. They can't show their poker face with that one. So, what do they do? They change the name in typical government fashion. <laughs> if you didn't already know, the government loves the government loves its acronyms. So, keeping with the U, I guess, uh, they go from UFOs to Unidentified Aerial Phenomenon, UAP. So, now they stand up the UAP task force. What's also important about that whole incident in 2019 is now you have news breaks that via the... <laughs> Really, it started with the, the Clinton email server. You have news breaking that there is a black book program at the Pentagon called ATIP, Advanced Aeronautical Threat Program. Uh, I don't know. Don't here. I'll put it below right here. Which was headed by Luis Elizondo or Lou Elizondo. If you've ever seen Unidentified, he's kind of a big deal. Maybe one day we'll get to speak with him. He's huge. Um, we'll find out. Maybe one day he'll come on here, but he's, he's kind of a big deal. But he led that program, worked on the initiative to, to declassify a lot of this information, which brings us to today. And 2022, there were congressional hearings to further this initiative of, of declassification and kind of being transparent with the public about what's going on. Several videos were shown, and there's been more since then. I think um, there's one that was in Iraq or somewhere that's it's come on um, recently. Uh, I have to do more research onto it, I research into it. At these congressional hearings, I have to tip my hat to, to Congress for having these. There was a lot of information. I, I think that they were less out to prove aliens were there. I mean, a lot of the congressmen had questions about, you know, kind of, tinfoil hatty questions, if you will, trying to ask specifically if these were aliens or not aliens. Um, but I think the U.S. government right now is less less in the business of trying to find out what's flying them versus where they're where, what they are and if they're a threat. And they used a lot of of military lingo, so I picked up on that immediately. And it was more of a it was more of a national threat brief or or what they caused to national security than it was about finding out. Who was in? Who or what was in it? They're claiming a lot of these things are unmanned. Um, they never communicate. They had the two representatives from the UAP task force there, and they basically said, like, "Hey, we're only looking at it from a DoD perspective. We're not looking at this from from a our aliens real perspective." They're like, "There's other agencies out there looking at this stuff, and there's other non-government organizations looking at this, and we're working close with NASA." 
Uh, we're not looking to cover anything up, but once again, they they're not they're not trying to find out who who or what are piloting these things. They're more concerned if it's an adversary, uh, and if it is an adversary, then we're you know behind the U.S. government's behind on technology, in their opinion, not mine, their words. But they kept saying like, oh, we'll, we'll hold that for a classified um for a classified session. We'll hold that that question for a classified session, which leads me to believe that they have more information than out there than they lead that they lead on. I think in the future more information will come out, and we will find um, out what's what's out there. So now on to kind of what they are, if they are some of the things I've seen in other um, in the in other outlets uh, by people like Tom DeLong and Lou Elizondo. Um, it seems there's been a cultural shift where people aren't really believing that they're extraterrestrial, that they're terrestrial. Um, I've seen many things where people are talking about how they are using. Space-time travel, not space travel, but space-time. They're from the same location. Um, there are people that believe they're malevolent, that they have, a, they have a reason for being here. I've heard things like they're the reason why we have lost gaps in human uh, history. They kind of reset us. Um, I heard Tom Long once on, uh, on a podcast also talk about how him and his group or him and his company, they believe that, that these things aren't everlasting, like wherever all the human beings were everlasting with an everlasting soul and they don't have that. And they use things like fear or other or other tactics to try to, you know, understand what we are and they don't want us to reach full consciousness. Whether you believe that, I bet that's up to you. I, I'm I find it entertaining and I definitely have an open mind towards it. Um I think it's better than saying that there's nothing there because we would be naive to believe that in all of this vast universe with all these galaxies that we're the only ones on a spinning rock. I myself have seen maybe, I remember living in Arizona in the desert, seeing weird lights. Do I believe there is? I don't know. Um, they were. I remember seeing strange things in the night. I think the further you get out, the more you get into the southwest region, um, it's a lot more prevalent. Maybe because there's something there they're looking for. That's another theory that's been thrown out. But I, I, I've seen some weird lights. That's all I'm going to say. I haven't seen any crafts. I couldn't give you any descriptions of that. But one, that when researching for this episode... Um, that I found extremely interesting was, and it was actually one of Project Blue Book's um, big investigation, was the Hopkinsville um, visit or goblins, or there's multiple names out there for it. But to give you a rundown, in 1955, um, a family, there was about seven people in the house at the time in a rural part of Kentucky, um, report seeing, well, one of them saw a craft come down and, and land in a um, gully about 300 feet away from the home. And then after that, they were attacked by little green men. Um, very short, child size, they said, no no facial features. And when I saw that, I'm like, oh, Hopkinsville, Kentucky, that's where my grandfather's from. So, of course, uh, I was on the phone with my mother the other day, and I said, hey, ask Grandpa if he remembers anything about um, the Hopkinsville's goblins or the Hopkinsville visit. Um, he would have been about eight years old around the time, so I didn't expect him to uh, remember a whole lot. But he, he specifically says he remembers that people in the town were afraid to go outside of their homes at night after that incident. And it's it's a weird one because it, there's seven people that all claim they saw the same thing. They were shooting at them. They had a shootout with them. They were apparently killing them. I don't know if they found, they never found any bodies from any report I saw, but they were shooting at them. They ran through boxes of ammo. They were able to get away. Um, and this case warranted or brought in the attention of the state um, not just the the local police, but the state police and federal law, uh, law enforcement to come investigate it because it was a serious thing. 
we'll fast fast forward to about 2012 and 2019 when the documentary Hellier comes out and people are drawing conclusions to what is being sawn in Hillier is the same thing that was in the Hopkinsville area. So UFOs, I mean, obviously you can already tell they're not specific to the Southwest, but that's where a lot of these incidents come out of is from the Southwest region. Another thing out there people really kind of believe um, are ancient aliens and the ancient aliens um, helping the Egyptians build the pyramids, you know, influence other things around the world. There's people that believe that aliens are are angels in from the Bible um, based off of the description of angels and their forms. So there, there's a lot of there's a lot of speculation and a lot of belief out here with it. And UFOs and UAPs are something that I've just recently in the last several years, I'd say two two years, really started to look into. Um, and that goes into my thought, kind of. I don't necessarily believe that they're the angels that people speak of in the Bible, but I believe that they could have come here or been coming here for years. Uh, maybe this is where some of the the, the lore from other um, religions or beliefs come from. I wouldn't rule that out one bit. One that if you really want to start to get into UFOs and cryptids and ghosts all at the same time, especially if you're coming to this channel from a paranormal background, is definitely check out the Mothman incident. I believe that these things are connected. We are vibrations. We are a consciousness. I don't know if you've ever meditated. Give it a try. But I've had, in the last several years, I've had a, a profound experience with meditation that has really caused me to believe that, that frequencies and vibrations and resonance really play into our ego, if you will. And I don't mean ego as in like you're egotistical, but our ego is how we perceive ourselves. And I believe that too many of us are caught up in the physical side of ourselves and not the mental side of ourselves or the, the thought. And when, you, when you're able to kind of cross that plane with the two and separate the two, it's not far-fetched to believe that we are the only beings or there's something here affecting that. I said in the last episode with Teddy and Austin, uh, maybe when it comes to the paranormal, maybe you don't feel something at the place you're at because it, it's at a different frequency than you are. You're not resonating with it, you know. You're not you're not matching that signal. And I believe whatever is coming here, whether it be from here or from outer space or, or where, ha where have you, terrestrial, extraterrestrial, those things are drawn to people with, with different frequencies. I, I don't know if it's they're looking for weaker frequencies or stronger frequencies or how they're doing it. I just believe that they are doing it. And as we go on and we find more people that are like-minded that want to come on or not like-minded, I invite anybody to come on. If you'd like to come on and, and share, if you have a UFO experience to come on the show and talk about it, hey, at here with us at here with us podcast 22 at gmail.com or any of my social media links you can hit us up and we'll get you on here and we'll talk about it and i would love to do that but honestly there's there's so much with this topic and i don't think we can go into the other topics without first having the conversation of where it came from the things that have sparked it where we're at now with it to, to build off for future episodes we have to start here this is the first stone to be unturned you can think of the show as an investigation in, in some incidents I'd like to travel where people have had UFO, UAP incidents and see um, if I'm able to see anything like Joshua Tree or some of the other locations out in the desert. But I, I hope you've enjoyed this episode. Um, it was fun to make. A lot of research went into it. I, um, I, I myself love the history of, of how we get to um, these conclusions uh, as a human race uh, all these years later and how many people do and don't believe them. Um, and regardless if you don't or do 
there is historical evidence that points to it, and I don't think we can deny those those people the right to at least hear them out. Like I said, if you are interested in coming on to here with us to discuss any of your incidents um, with paranormal, UAPs, cryptids, or even just talk about your beliefs, hit us up at herewithuspodcast22 at gmail.com or on any of our social media links. I'm Cliff Shane Holter, and thank you again for watching.